For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order from meat eaters world news headquarters in bozeman montana this is cal's week in review with ryan cal callahan now here's cal the oldest human artifacts in North America have been found in Idaho, of all places. The archaeological team leading the dig at Cooper's Landing, Idaho, verified all artifacts through two different methods in order to prevent any bias and ensure accuracy in dating test results. The results are back, proving humans lived, hunted, and gathered in Idaho 16,500 years ago. This find predates other early human sites, such as the famous New Mexico Clovis sites, by at least a thousand years. Everyone at this point is at least casually familiar with the Bering Land Bridge and the thought that humans started showing up in North America after making a long, frozen trek from Asia into what is now Alaska eventually following an ice-free corridor down the coast to latitudes in the lower 48. This theory is substantiated by the shared technology found at early human sites, again like the Clovis Point, which suggests that there was a common human origin point rather than several groups originating from different points. Well, this site in Cooper's Ferry, Idaho, located on the Salmon River near its confluence with the Snake River, a major tributary of the Columbia River, you know, that really big river that hits the Pacific, is especially interesting because some believe that it may eventually prove a different human migration theory, the theory that people got to North America much earlier and not by foot but by boat following what is called the Kelp Highway. This route is essentially a water version of the Bering Land Bridge, where early humans hugged the coastlines in primitive boats sticking primarily to roots thick with kelp forests. The kelp forests would provide a consistent food source as well as a safer means of sea travel as the kelp will break up some of the surf action, allowing for smoother sea travel. 
the key artifacts found at Cooper's Landing that potentially support the Kelp Highway hypothesis are western stemmed points. Western stem points, again, predate Clovis points by roughly a thousand years, which is cool, but that's not the most exciting link. Very similar Western stem points have been found in Japan, and, you guessed it, dated to 16,500 years ago. Now remember back to this origin theory, how shared technology links groups of humans. How could we have very similar technology from roughly the exact same time period at two points separated by the Pacific Ocean, at a time when a significant portion of the possible land route was covered in ice if there weren't any boats present? If you were traveling the coast in a primitive boat, making a left turn and going up the Columbia ways, maybe all the way to Idaho, possibly on a river that seemed more steelhead and salmon than water, that option could have looked a little bit better than just crossing the Columbia at its historically dangerous mouth. Of course, other than the fact that humans camped at Cooper's Ferry, Idaho, 16,500 years ago with western stem points, this is all just theory. I will tell you, coincidentally, I hiked and hunted only about 50 or so air miles from this site just last week, and the only signs of humans beyond myself were an old pull-tab Coors can in a spot I thought naively no human could have been. Guess I was only the second hunter at that spot, potentially just missing each other by about 16,500 years. This week, we've got hurricanes, ants, forehead-breathing sea snakes, motor bicycles, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I traveled out to eastern Oregon, lucky enough to have a highly coveted private land bull elk tag for a nature conservancy property known as the Zumwalt Prairie Preserve. Again, and coincidentally, I was almost within sight of Cooper's Ferry, Idaho, above the Imnaha River, which flows down to the snake, just like the salmon, where Cooper's Ferry is located. I looked at and checked out and discovered and found all sorts of incredibly interesting things out on the Zumwalt Prairie Preserve. I could fill up this entire episode with all that knowledge, but the world keeps turning and my little area of focus cannot take up our 20 minutes, so I'll just hit you with a highlight or two right here, right now. The rest of the story you'll be able to catch at TheMeatEater.com in a special and upcoming video edition of Cal's Week in Review. Trust me, you won't be spared any details. Anyway, ants made a serious impression on me this trip. First, we found big red aphids on thistle plants out on the prairie. These aphids were at first impression being predated upon by red ants. However, this was not the case. Upon closer inspection, the ants were in fact tending to the aphids in order to harvest their sugary excretions. Apparently. Allow me to explain as this mutualistic relationship we witnessed on the prairie is fascinating stuff. Aphids, a pest to any plant grower or farmer, sometimes known as plant lice, consume large quantities of fluid from plants that excrete a high sugar waste fluid referred to as honeydew. Ants will go to extraordinary lengths to ensure this aphid-produced sugar source keeps producing, almost like a dairy farmer tending their herd. Ants will actually stroke or milk aphids with their antennae to promote the excretion of honeydew, to the point where some aphids have quit being able to excrete without ants. There are some human relationship references I can make here, but let's not go down that path. <whistles> the ants will protect the aphids from predators such as ladybugs, as well as store aphid eggs inside ant mounds to protect them from winter temperatures. When spring comes around, the ants will actually plant the stored aphid eggs on new food sources to start the cycle all over again. 
The ants make sure the aphids are safe and well-fed in order to get fed in return. Sounds like a pretty good system. Although, when food sources get scarce and the aphid colony is stressed to the point of trying to relocate in hopes of finding better food, the ants have actually been observed chewing the aphids' wings off. Which doesn't sound quite so Disney or mutualistic when you think of it. Hakuna Matata! What a wonderful... The other ant phenomenon we encountered out on the Zumwalt Prairie were tiny flying ant swarms. These little winged guys and gals were about the size of a fingernail clipping. The air above the prairie our last morning was thick with them. When I say thick, I mean at first glance the swarms appeared to be smoke, or maybe a huge flight of starlings in the distance. Hundreds of thousands, tens of millions, I really can't say. What I can tell you is in the morning they coated everything. Clothing, faces, nostrils, ears, cameras, binocular lenses. At one point, I had to extract one venturous winged ant from the eyeball of the preserve steward, Chad Dotson. Memorable for all parties as I had to ask if he wanted to lick my finger or if he was cool with me using my own saliva. You know, saliva being used as a type of adhesive for picking things out of people's eyeballs. Found it has a much more appropriate viscosity for the task than tap water. Uh, no word yet if I uh, infected him with anything saliva or finger related. Anyway, bunch of cool experiences out there on the Zoom wall. Major thanks to the Nature Conservancy for having me out. Look forward to the Cal's Week in Review video episode coming soon to TheMeatEater.com where you can see this stuff and much, much more. A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So if something happens to me and I'm not around anymore, I can have more peace of mind that my family can have some financial support, and that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person, and that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. More. Very quickly before we get going, I had a ton of folks write in on the big mouth buffalo, the oldest documented freshwater fish, which is commonly and erroneously referred to by folks, such as myself, as a big mouth buffalo carp. However, it is actually not a carp. The big mouth buffalo is in fact a sucker. I had a lot of folks write in, thank you for telling me how much you care. I think it's really cool how many fans of this very cool, long-lived, but not so pretty fish are out there. And uh, last but not least, I would be doing you a major disservice if I did not tell you about our new super comfortable Captains for Clean Water shirt collaborative project between Ed Anderson, Meat Eater, and Captains for Clean Water. All profits from this sharp-looking hoodie will go to Captains for Clean Water to help them lobby on behalf of Florida's fisheries. On top of that, you can drop some Cal's Week in Review knowledge on everyone who comments on your new good-looking tarpon shirt. That tarpon is the only member of the family Megalops, and its cousins are in the fossil record going back 115 million years. They are also what is known as obligate air breathers. Meaning that even though this fish has gills, a tarpon needs to get a sip of fresh air every so often. And then, when they are sufficiently wowed, you can tell them to go to TheMeatEater.com and get a good-looking shirt of their own and support conservation at the same time. That's a win-win-win type of scenario. All right, moving on. I'm hoping that by the time you hear this, that Hurricane Dorian has weakened and ended its path of destruction. But, as I record this, the former Category 4, then Category 5, then Category 4, then Category 3, then Category 2, then Category 3 storm is aiming for the East Coast. Humans and other terrestrial creatures, particularly those living on isolated islands like the Bahamas, have little capacity to escape coming storms. Aquatic creatures, on the other hand, can and do swim away from impending weather, contrary to bad horror movie lore. Sharks, for example, have an incredible capacity to sense and avoid systems. Multiple studies have shown that sharks will move to deeper water away from the paths of storms. In 2001, during Hurricane Gabriel, 14 of 14 tagged black-tib sharks did just that. When the storm approached, they moved into deeper water, eventually migrating back to shallow water after the storm had passed. Their innate ability to detect barometric changes prevents the possibility of any real-life sharknados. But why let good science stand in the way of bad sci-fi? 
Other toothy critters, however, have been displaced by tropical storms. In 1877, a rural South Carolinian witnessed something straight out of a Tara Reid movie when a reptile fell from the sky in front of him. It turned out to be an alligator, and the man went on to find six other 12-inch alligators, all of which had fallen from the sky after being picked up by a waterspout six miles away. Although gators are an extreme example, critters fall from the sky more often than one might think. All over the globe, people have witnessed reigning wildlife, such as spiders, worms, frogs, toads, fish, and in a few cases, jellyfish. While sharkicanes aren't actually a thing, the destructive power of hurricanes is difficult to overstate. Biblical rain, tidal surge, and 130 mile per hour winds are plenty destructive, as our low-lying neighbors to the east are all too aware right now. We don't know the full extent of the damage Hurricane Dorian unleashed on the northern Bahamas, but sources on the inside tell me that the destruction in places like Grand Bahama and Abaco is almost unimaginable. Those are fishing communities, and while it's going to be quite some time before we learn the long-term impacts of a Category 5 storm camping over the top of a small island chain and pummeling it for 40 hours straight, we know that lives have been lost, houses have been flattened, and communities have been displaced. Hunters and anglers take care of our own, so we're auctioning off a whole selection of lures and flies handmade by the Meat Eater team and donating every dime to Dorian Relief Efforts. Check out the details on the Meat Eater Instagram account coming soon. If you think having a hole in your head is a bad thing, check out the annulated sea snake. Sea snakes can breathe through their skin, which is just one adaptation and a list of many that's incredible. Low oxygen arterial blood flows directly beneath the skin. This low oxygen blood sort of creates a vacuum, a strong enough vacuum to actually pull oxygen through the snake's skin out of the relatively high oxygen dense seawater. What makes the annulated snake unique, though, is the hole in the top of its skull, and researchers just found out that, in fact, it is unique. Major blood vessels run through the hole in the sea snake's head and continue on in a complex network of veins just under the surface of the forehead and snout. This complex web converges into a single large vein that runs directly into the brain. It is this concentrated oxygen-gathering web with direct route to the brain that allows this nine-and-a-half-foot-long sea snake to swim and hunt beneath the waves. So, if you live in Australia or Vietnam, happy swimming. Moving on, and I'm going to hit you with a big one from our call-to-action desk right now, so pay attention. Have you ever ridden a bicycle and thought to yourself, wouldn't this be a heck of a lot easier if there were a motor on this bike? Something that would help pedal or maybe do all of the pedaling for me? Yes! Well, you aren't the only one. Back in the 1860s, just shortly after bicycles were invented, a few crafty individuals started putting small steam engines on bicycles. Then, in 1885, two German inventors by the names of Daimler and Maybach put a petroleum-based combustion engine on a bicycle. Let me stop for a second and tell you what old Melba Toast was packing. We're talking single cylinder, 264 cubic centimeters, 7 mile per hour top speed, and a half a horsepower, a muscle. All right, all right. Different versions of bicycles with motors have come and gone throughout history with names like Douglas, Cyclopeds, and of course the moped popularized in the 50s. All of these motorized bicycles have had some level of pedal assist or full power with the pedals acting as a place to just rest your feet. 
with the exception of the moped, and now, to fast forward to the magical world of today, we have a resurgence in people putting motors on bicycles. Only this time, they're getting real squirrely on their definition of motor. Acting Secretary of the Interior David Bernhardt has just issued Secretarial Order 3376, which states that electric bicycles, or e-bikes, are now allowed wherever bicycles are allowed in national parks. As long as the motor on the electric bicycle does not exceed 750 watts or 1 horsepower. Secretarial Order 3376 instructs the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Reclamation, and the Wildlife Refuge System, managed by the Department of Fish and Wildlife, to follow suit. Now, I'm going to be up front with you and tell you that if you love riding e-bikes, and that is your preferred method of recreating, I think that's just fine. My bone to pick here is not with you, it is with the part of Secretarial Order 3376, where Secretary Bernhardt instructs the directors for the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, and the Commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation to expressly exempt all e-bikes as from falling under the definition of off-road vehicle, and further to exempt e-bikes from being defined as a motor vehicle. Now remember our history lesson on putting motors on bicycles back in 1885. Heck, back in the 1860s, let's call it. 150 years ago, roughly. Folks put engines half the size on bicycles and called them motorbikes. What is the point of calling a motorbike a not motorbike? And what are the ramifications? Well, some people have called this the end of the BLM's management for human-powered recreation. Some think that this is a major win for access, citing the fact that the elderly and handicapped will be able to get more places easier. This is what I know. One, if you have a bicycle and you put a motor on it, it is called a motorbike. That's not much of a stretch. Two, a huge part of funding for trails, trailheads, and campsites come from OHV or off-highway vehicle stickers and off-highway vehicle registration fees. If Secretary Bernhardt is correct and Secretarial Order 3376 is successful in providing access to more miles of trail to the people who are apparently waiting with their electrically motorized bicycles, where will the money come from to maintain and improve the trail systems and trailheads? I am all for people getting outside, but again, look at our history lesson. In 1885, a single-cylinder, 264-cubic centimeter engine was put on a bike, which propelled the bike at 7 miles per hour, with only half a horse of power. Comparatively, a brand new 248.8 cubic centimeter KTM single-cylinder engine will have you running at 80 miles per hour in no time. But I'll admit, that's not exactly comparing apples to apples. The point is, technology evolves, and we'll soon be getting a lot more out of our one horsepower or less electric bicycles than the law currently intends. An e-bike that falls under Secretary Bernhardt's definition of non-motorized has a factory max speed of 28 miles per hour, and they'll soon be on non-motorized trails, trails that already sustain the impacts of the bulk of existing non-motorized users. Hikers, backpackers, bird watchers, hunters, folks who ride horses. These are the trails that get the most use. These are the trails that need the most funding. If this situation is concerning to you, I strongly suggest you reach out to your duly elected officials and let them know. 
Let them know that you value your public lands and access, and we need more folks paying into the system, not just barely peddling through it. Thanks a bunch for listening. If you found something fun and interesting, please tell a friend or two. If you want to harass me or tell me how I'm doing, shoot me an email at askcal, that's A-S-K-C-A-L, at themeateater.com. I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.